see where we go this is going to be very very interesting uh i probably say that a lot but yeah we are rearing in on the end here today's episode is not recorded as i'm talking right now we have dave from the great concavity podcast go check that out i believe the other host's name is matt i'm not sure matt wasn't busy that's the point whatever his name was was too busy uh so we have dave from the great concavity podcast and we will be, uh, so because he is out there on the West Coast, and because he has those things called children, we're doing a nightcast here. That's right, uh, 10.45 right now, Eastern Standard Time. We're going to start in a few minutes. I'll tell you what we'll be talking about. We'll be talking about Kate Gompert uh, getting her head smushed by poor Tony, snatching them purses. Oh, poor Tony, when will you learn, you little ragamuffin, you? About Ruth Van Cleave chasing him down. Um, Joel, Maraith, all the, you know, all your friends in Infinite Jazzland. Oh, God, it is freezing outside. Um, some of you have messaged me wondering how I am, um, knowing that I'm in Philadelphia and there was some looting happening nearby. And the truth is, I'm fine, but yes, I am very, that, the looting that was happening in Philadelphia was happening six blocks from me. Um, Guys, it's weird. It's weird here in Philadelphia just because, uh, listen, I I support the Black Lives Matter movement 100%. Yeah, 100%. I don't know why I questioned that for a second. 100%, yeah. But uh, we have gotten the point here where it's it's a little nihilistic, like uh, the shooting that happened of uh, something, something Wallace. I don't remember his full name. 
But yes, the the gentleman who was gunned down was in a completely different side of the city, but literally like a thousand people hopped on the train or hopped in their car and drove five miles to the opposite side of the city and they did all the looting here. Because, uh, yeah, I think the last time... The last time when the riot, when uh, the protests were getting really bad over the summer, they came and they hit Port Richmond, my neck of the woods. And I think the cops were very caught off guard because we're very far away from the main strip of the city. Like, you know, the subway doesn't come here. The bus lines barely come here. So uh, I think they were very caught off guard. So, yeah, it wasn't the the looting had was as opportunistic as it could get because it was people who don't live in this chunk of the city coming here i mean i even joked to my girlfriend like do we need a tv because i mean they're breaking into the target anyway like i i jog to that target every night i think i could jog back with like smart tv i don't know but yeah so we're we're fine it's weird here when you're listening we have the big election coming up tomorrow and uh wow i'm looking forward to that gonna gonna be a little bit crazy people people are getting tense here i live in a trump neighborhood which i wonder like why do you even still live in a city at this point these people are like uh, uh, it's our it's our neighborhood you know you're a bunch of transplants like oh okay so you never got within four blocks away of the house you grew up in and that makes you entitled to the neighborhood gotcha understood city hicks i believe they're called city hicks uh yeah i live in a weirdly immigrant neighborhood but it's it's all white it's like polish and eastern immigrant which i I mean i am a polish background i don't know if i've said it on the podcast before but yes i have had people get out of their cars and just start yelling to me in polish so i guess i fit in better than i would like um uh this one this one's mean but it's kind of funny i was uh visiting my friend seamus down in South Philly the other day. Shout out Seamus Millar. Look up all his stuff. He's a hilarious comic. Uh, Shambles Murph on all his thing. But yeah, I, we were just sitting there chatting with Seamus. And there was just like a, a few girls riding by on bikes. And I fun, I suddenly stopped and I looked at him like, oh my god. I just realized everybody's everybody's ugly in the neighborhood I live in. Because <laughs> I was like, ooh, like checking these girls out and like, wait, I haven't done this in a while. Why is this? Oh, yeah, because I live in like the grandma and pierogies and the Trump 2020 flag side of town. <laughs> oh, good fun. I, I have taken to audibly just yelling into houses or at houses that have the Trump flag. It's like they have an American There's some shit going on here where there's these pamphlets that are all over the street because people just throw them out. And it's just like a thing that hangs on your doors is Donald Trump wants you to make a plan to vote. And the photo, the illustration of Trump in it is like a leaning over black shot from underneath red tie menacing big brother. Like they're not even hiding the fucking symbolism anymore. It's a little terrifying. Um. I've told you guys before that I was alt-right when I was young, early 20s. What the fuck did I know? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I've definitely gone very far outside of it. And I've, I've tried to make the point to people I know, because I have friends who are voting for the guy. And I, I, I don't know what's wrong with them. But, I mean, part of it is just, like, 
this is not you're sad because your team lost like this isn't a team thing i would not be terrified of if of if we were in the fourth year of a romney presidency you know this is this is scary this is freaky my my fiance miss perry footnote episode one is uh freaking the fuck out i'm i'm just te- reading the polls to her every day and she's like you're gonna jinx this stop so of course that leads to me saying like i guarantee donald trump will lo- like just just it's fun upsetting people you love is it not <laughs> so that's enough rambling uh guys check this episode i guess if america's still here next week ooh, this this gives us an opportunity for like hey maybe donald trump goes crazy and then canada and mexico offer to pitch in and the onan happens and then we can turn <laughs> we, we can turn fucking florida into the great uh convexity you know dump the toxic waste. that's where he's going so we'll dump the toxic waste right along with him and then we don't have to worry about florida seceding because nobody wants it anyway guys episode 25 listen to the great concavity podcast and we're here with god i don't even know his last name i'm gonna pause this and get his last name real quick dave laird l-a-i-r-d Go follow them on all the things. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'll ask him in three minutes when I meet him for the first time. All right. You guys have a nice week. Enjoy your I Hate Infinite Just podcast. Only seven left. Enjoy it. Only for a moment and the moment's gone. See also, I keep forgetting I have shit to promote. November 12th, I will be at Workhorse Brewing in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. If you guys want to come see a comedy show, you can look that if you look up uh, Cricket Comedy online on Facebook, Cricket Comedy, that is Workhorse Brewing in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. I will also be at the Pensacon Country Club for a Survivor Series style roast battle. Ye gods, that's going to be fun. That's going to be myself, uh, Rusty Wright. I think that's the only people that have been on the show that are going to be on it. But it's going to be a few people. going to be a lot of fun. going to be at the Pensacon Country Club Thursday, November 19th in uh, Pensacon, New Jersey. Follow me at Jesse Dram, at Jesse Dram at gmail.com, at Mr. Jezgo, at Diamond Joe Quim. It ain't too much. It's just dirty. Okay, bye. <laughs>
other podcasters that I invited on who gave, who listened to a few episodes and said, oh, I don't know if I want to be involved in this sort of thing. Pinch on in public podcast. What? Oh, but, Bo uh, Butler. <laughs> nah, oh, he was, come on, Bo. <laughs> nah, he, he was really polite. And honestly, I haven't listened to the Pinch on in public podcast, so I don't know. It's, I know we can get a little dirty here. Which, but I mean, well, can, I would love to get dirty book. about pinching in public because uh, those folks and, I, and us have a very storied podcast beef that goes back years and years. I was um, aware of Bo, such a thing. Bo started it. Um, I might have suggested having it with you uh, based on the title of, of your podcast, <laughs> except for we already had a literary podcast beef. So I just totally let it slide, man. So you're, uh, you're, you're fine. We're just going to be friends and we'll just right, dunk on good. Bo. Yeah, we can we can double team pinch on in public. All right, that's right. Yeah. I wish I knew. Although actually, it was an, was a, came on our podcast in like uh, I think episode forty something. Oh, uh, we didn't have any reservations about you guys. Nice. And, and he's actually, you know, he's read Infinite Just quite a few more times than I have actually. So he turned out to be like way more of a Wallace weenie than he might otherwise let on. So now, how many times have you read it? Uh, three, three full times. Okay. Um, so, you know, the first time was in uh, end of 2007. I think I finished in January 2008. Um, and then I, I let it sit for a long time. And then I reread it when I was doing um, my master's thesis actually on it, mm. which was, I think I started in 2014. And then two years later, I got roped into, um, I say roped in, but I was very happy to do it to a um, <laughs> infinite winter uh, online reads you probably read i think you've mentioned infinite summer on your show before yeah um, which obviously just happens to be concurrent with when i'm recording it that that's when that came up so oh yeah yeah. <laughs> so yeah i was a, a weekly guide so i'd write a post every 75 pages you know, 15 posts or whatever uh trying to help people get through the book as you know as well as i could and so yeah three three full reads and so um getting to read this this 30 page section for for coming on tonight was a really fun like dip back into it because it's been about four years since i've really uh read any like passages at length from it well see i'm really hoping that this will be um this will be the kind of book just because it is so mammoth that i can in the future go back and read parts of it that i like totally yeah like yeah. i have so here uh, at like 714 now, what's, I have a, what's your favorite passage that you think you oh, might revisit at some point? God, <laughs> um, it it has it's pretty hack to say, but probably Gately in the parking lot. That was beautiful. Okay, yeah, just the uh, I I I love not only the descriptions and the, and the language, but just specifically what this is to this character. That this is a character who has been fighting his natural inclination so long and second guessing himself. And then suddenly mm -hmm. he's in a situation where that, that record needle goes right back into the groove and he's kind of, he's, he's at peace with violence. Cause for the first time in a long mm -hmm. time, like, Oh, I, 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 I am very stable in this kind of chaos. Right. So like when he's fighting the French Canadians in front of yes. the house. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a pretty nuts scene, isn't it? Yes, it is. I was, <laughs> I was very into that. Um, shit, we went too far. Uh, where can we find okay, you okay. online as far as like, oh, hashtag, sure. uh, what am I saying? Hashtag social media. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, our podcast is, um, which I do with, with a great friend of mine named Matt Booker. Mm. Um, and I met Matt through going to academic David Foster Wallace conferences. Um, mm. 
So there was a recurring one for a long time at Illinois State University every year. So we met in uh, 2015 there. Um, so our podcast is, uh, our website's greatconcavity.podbean.com. And we're, you know, we're on Twitter, at Concavity Show. We're on Instagram, at Concavity Show. We're on Facebook, just search The Great Concavity. Any podcasting platform, search The Great Concavity, you'll find us. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, so I wasn't aware you guys were coming out of this as uh, from, from an academic, academic, academic viewpoint. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, like at the time I was, I was doing a master's in English. Um, so I'm not, and I finished there. I didn't, I didn't go on to do a PhD or anything and I don't mm. think I ever will. Um, so I've done a, a bit of scholarship on Wallace. It's like, I've got a couple, you know, articles published or whatever in books on that are specific to David Foster Wallace studies. Um, Matt doesn't consider himself to be an academic at all, but he's worked in publishing for a long time. Um, and actually he's done like quite a few conference presentations at this conference and you know I would more or less (laughs) consider him to be an academic but I think he's just being humble about it Mm -hmm. Um, but we try to we try to like strike a balance on our show of like appealing to a general fan audience who likes you know Infinite Jest who likes Wallace's work who likes books in general Um, our show tends to be like you know Wallace adjacent stuff too it's not just you know, we talk about Wallace exclusively every episode for the entire time. Like mm. we have other novelists on our show. We talk about their work, um, but we try to keep it to like, we think people who dig Wallace would also like this other stuff um, that's similar, you know? Mm. Um, so sometimes we do have guests on that are academic, you know, PhD types, and they've written a, a whole monograph, an academic book on Wallace's work. Um, but we also have, you know, fans, we have a lot of artists on who've done something cool with Wallace. Um, we have, we have musicians, we have, I mentioned novelists. Um, so quite a range of, of types of folks who've engaged meaningfully with Wallace's work in some way. Um, so we try to keep it not like super, um, you know, highbrow academic. We want it to be accessible to, you know, the average person who just likes likes books you know i got you see yeah that was definitely the different angle we had coming into this uh my my background is obviously comedy that was what got me right, into yeah. this was yeah. i knew several comedians who loved this book and they yeah, happened yeah. to be the better educated amongst them so that's why dan ostrov <laughs> uh steve clark i was super upset that uh so i'm not sure if you're aware of him but like in my comedy circle he's somewhat big uh, Matt McCusker from Matt and Shane's Secret Podcast. He is a massive David Foster Wallace fan. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, I don't know. Uh, okay. All right. I've danced around this for a lot of... So <laughs> do you remember about a year ago, there was a, a guy who got on Saturday Night Live and then immediately lost his job when it was revealed he'd said some pretty over-the-line shit on a podcast? No, I don't think I know about this. Uh, That's well, this guy? Uh, it, it, it was said on his podcast. It was the other guy on that. Oh, podcast. Okay. And Whoa. that was, that was a weird thing for our circle. Cause these were like, Oh, everybody, like we went to open mics with these guys and now one of them's an, on SNL. And oh, wow, okay. now this guy is an international pariah. This is very interesting. Can you say his name? Matt McCusker. Uh, the other guy was, is uh, Shane Gillis. Shane Gillis. Okay. Yeah. And he was on Shane Gillis was on SNL he, briefly. He, 
uh, he never actually got on air. He got he got fired okay, okay. almost immediately. But I, re I really wanted his podcast partner on because this guy has an incredibly like blue collar background and mm -hmm. yet loves this book, which cool. is cool. That's sweet. I love uh, that. I would have loved to get into it. Unfortunately, he's just been really busy, new dad. And uh, all that. Yeah. I I, I yes. went off on a whole tangent there, but but then again, that's that's part of the You're reason fine, you and sir. I that's part of the reason you and I are recording so late because you also have kids. I believe you said. Yeah, I got one. I got a three year old. So yeah, yeah. bedtime out on the on the West Coast here was not too long ago. <laughs> nice. Um. So how did you initially discover? infinite jest in the first place was that your first introduction to wallace or were you aware of him vaguely yeah it was um i think i think the the way that i kind of got into books i guess that are sort of in this wheelhouse or is um i took a third year american lit class and i am canadian i live in british columbia so i'm at a canadian university and i'm taking an american lit, lit class and uh, my professor had us read white noise by don delillo mm-hmm and I read that book and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read it and find all the other books that are like this. Mm -hmm. And so DeLillo was, was kind of my, um, my like uh, gateway drug into the, the world of literary fiction and like postmodernism. And, and I, I, I love, love when you can find an artist or a piece of art that just like knocks out a genre wall in your life. Totally. And now yes. you have a whole new wing to explore. I yeah. love that. Yeah. And that wing has been being explored for um, let's say, I think I took that class in like 2006. Mm. So 14 years later and I'm still trying to read more and more books, you know, like that one that I read in that class. And so, and at that time, the main sort of way that I was finding more books like white noise was um, like my really good friend, Nathan was into that kind of, into that kind of literary fiction. And he would be like, Oh, you know, check out this book and this person. Um, but I was using Amazon, like, you know, you, you go to white noise, people who bought this book also bought. Oh, okay. And I kind of just like surfed that for a long time and just, and just looked at found like titles that look cool or books that had a nice cover. And I'd read the, the description and then I'd get that book and read that mm -hmm. book. And I just kind of kept doing that. Eventually infinite Jest started to kind of recur in the, in that rec recommendation section. So you um, know what's funny. I've read so many posts online come of the two major pressings of infinite Jest and hating mm -hmm. both the covers. <laughs> I've, I've heard that a lot, especially like the, the 25th anniversary one people that it's just white and has the eyeball on. Yeah. It. People yeah. hate that thing. Yeah, um, I got a free copy of that one as a result of doing the Infinite Winter read. Like they sent one to all of all of us guides, uh, okay. so I got it. But uh, a really good friend of mine, he's an artist. He I met him at, at the 2015 conference, same one that I met Matt. Uh, he has done a great deal of Infinite Jest fan art. Like he's made movie posters for hmm. um, like all of James Incandenza's films. <laughs> So like every film in the filmography, pretty much my friend Chris Ayers has made like a really amazing, legit movie poster for. So around the time when um, Little Brown put out a contest for so, like someone to make the cover for the 20th, uh, 20th anniversary edition mm -hmm. and Chris Ayers compiled, he found all of the entries and compiled them on his website. Um, so I'll, I'll send you the link for that later and you can put it in your show notes if you want to see like Definitely. other entries for the 20th edition. But yeah, when it got revealed, like most people that I know in this community were like 
pretty bummed <laughs> on how it, how it turned out. Cause there were some really cool submissions that, that mm. Chris posted to. Um, I think like, I don't know, five years later, four years later, I don't feel as bad about the cover as mm. I did initially. Like I remember feeling pretty sad, but it's kind of grown on me a bit and I'm, I'm okay with it. I've made peace with it. There you go. When there's, when there's something you love hiding inside, it's, you'll, you'll come around to it. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not grotesque. It's not, it's not like when I look at it, I don't think like this is a repugnant piece of art, you know, right. I, well, it's not I think an eyesore. It's just, it could be more compelling. I think is, is maybe, especially it, it's a bit lacking, I suppose, you know, especially when you have such a creative fan base out there that is making yeah. a lot of art as it mm-hmm. like connected to the novel itself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay. So you, yeah. you said that you have some questions for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, one of them is now you're like, you're like four fifths of the way through this book, right? Oh yeah. The first time. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm thinking, okay. Um, on a scale of one to like say 11, I'm wondering how much you currently hate infinite jest after having gone this far. Um, I know the title is like a bit tongue in cheek, but in your first episode, you kind of talk about like you hated it the first time you're willing it to get willing to give another shot. You're kind of like this podcast is like sort of helping you get through the book in a way, right? Helping you to, oh, yeah. to explore your way through the book, um, getting some help some, from some pals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What's your kind of, where would you put yourself now on that, on that scope? Um, I think on a scale of one to 11, one being the least hate, 11 being the most hate. Yeah. Like spinal tap hatred, you know, mm. uh, probably, probably a four or a five. Oh, um, okay. That's, that's better than I was expecting. It's, uh, well, <laughs> we're, we're, it, subject to change depending sure. on the ending on the or ending. lack yeah. thereof. But, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it, the, the thing I keep saying is that. I think there is a great 400 page story hiding in this 1100 page book. Now stuff's happening now. I'll, I'll be honest up until very, very recently, I just hated all the incandenses. Like I am not interested in you. I do not relate yeah. to Hal a little. If you relate to Hal, you're a bad person maybe, or maybe not. Maybe I'm being hyperbolic, <laughs> but uh, for, for me, this has been, I have been I have been channel surfing looking for the Don Gately show. Okay. And yeah. that's Don where... Don is like a strong highlight storyline yeah. for me as well. And I think a lot of people I know would agree with that too. Right. But yeah. uh things are things are coming together. Um it's it, it, you know what it is? Even even seeing how it's put together, I my main reason starting this podcast was it wasn't just that I didn't like it, I didn't mm-hmm. understand what other people liked about it. Yeah. Now yeah. I see what other people like about it now, but mm-hmm. just the stuff I am, I am thoroughly not charmed by David Foster Wallace. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. It, yeah. When, when I've, when I've been feeling mean, what I've been saying is uh, <laughs> David Foster Wallace did not have any original insight that was not said decades earlier and better. I like the Russians of, of the 19th century. You know? by, by the Russians, by Vonnegut. But then, but then again, I, yeah, I realize yeah. that I read for a very specific thing. I, mm-hmm. I like old men telling me how the world works in tiny okay. little chunks. Gotcha. 
Yeah. No. So like Mark Twain's good for you. You know, mm -hmm. he's got all his aphorisms. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I, I dig Wallace's writing a lot enough to have been doing a podcast about him for the last five years, I suppose. Um, but I don't feel like precious about him in, in a way that like, I'm not offended if someone says they don't like his writing or they're not charmed, right? Like that's totally cool with me. I get it. Oh, by the um, way, that, that, that is absolutely another impulse with the podcast, which is just, <laughs> I, I do not, I do not like sacred things. So okay. when a lot of people have like kind of lionized him, then yes. it's, it's all, all the more fun in tearing him down a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So. And that's been a really interesting thing to watch develop in the last, you know, 12 years since his death too, is the way that he's been kind of, you know, valorized or um, mm -hmm. sainted in some ways. Like there was kind of a St. Dave trajectory on certain pockets of the internet that was starting yeah. to, to emerge. But the last few years have really gone in the opposite direction from mm -hmm. that where, um, you know, Mary Carr, who is a, po is a famous poet. Um, she's been quite vocal on Twitter about, about some of the abuse that she suffered when she was dating him. Um, and, you know, some of that stuff wasn't exactly news uh, entirely because the biography that came out by T DT Max in 2012, you know, had some of that stuff in it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's also, it's also tricky with a guy who's continuously being rediscovered by a new generation they're not yeah. they're they're not always getting the update like oh and by the way five years ago we found out he did some bad shit yeah 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 totally and i mean our, our current contemporary moment around um you know me too and mm -hmm. our tall our culture's tolerance for bullshit from toxic men is at an all-time low which is great mm -hmm. and so now in retrospect people are looking at wallace's biography and certain details of it and being like you know, this guy maybe isn't as deserving as we once thought he was of of that kind of, you know, sainting or canonization or however you want to sort of put it. Um, I mean, I, and so I even... like there's there's the big conversation around like death of the author. You know, like mm -hmm. um, how much do we equate, you know, the, the human person with the the text on the page, and where's the balance between the art artist morality and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a you know an interesting conversation to be a part of for the last few years or so. Mm -hmm. um, See, I've heard I've heard people when I try to when I have pointed that out and like, oh, there, you know, there you've told me he's a bad guy. Are you happy now? Are you happy that you destroyed it? It's like, well, no, it's I don't I don't even want him posthumously canceled. It's just I, I and I think the answer for a lot of these particularly artists who are no longer with us is not the end. The end answer isn't for me personally. It's not that you can't enjoy this anymore because he was a bad guy. It's yeah. no, you you need to look at this now from in and not only in the context of the time it was written, but mm -hmm. in guys, yeah. the the entire book is about what a broken fucking person he is. You can't be a little shocked when, oh yeah, being broken might make you do bad things here yeah. and there. Yeah, for sure. So it's yeah. you know, just always have, have have your gods but you know kick them in the shins every now and again <laughs> yeah yeah no kidding and i mean like the passage that that we're talking about tonight has a lot of really cringy racist stuff in it mm -hmm. uh, and i'm sure we'll get to that later but like when you say it's a product of the time it was written so you know 90 93 to 96 is when wallace wrote this mm -hmm. came out in 96 um you know we can talk about you know whether some of the 
description of, of like the Chinese women when Randy Lenz is stalking them and their and their their bags mm-hmm. is you know from the perspective of Lenz's disgusting racist you know cranium and his worldview mm-hmm. is that reflective of Wallace's view of Chinese people like God I certainly hope not you know so there's like there's a lot of nuance to the mm-hmm. racial questions within this book and 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 they have come under a lot of critical scrutiny in the last few years for yeah. sure like Wardeen so B cry section uh, yeah, the book that, you know like that is a super problematic <laughs> few pages of literature for sure no matter think, when it was written i think part of it is not only that it's so problematic but that particular section feels so unnecessary like i thought that mm, at sure. the moment and now i'm it's just not good storytelling you know yeah, like or it's, yeah. it's i'm i'm four-fifths into the book that if that thing was not there i would have mm. never it's not like you've been like huh this, this feels like it missed a beat you know mm. and i think part of it is also and this yeah. is something that's been more I understand the impulse because again, in the vein of comedy, if you went back 10 years ago, uh, it was perfectly okay. Not perfectly okay, but you had a lot of examples like Louis C.K., another canceled guy, like, oh, let's take these slurs, but let's turn them around. And still, Mm -hmm. it it was a time where you could like still use the stereotypes and the slurs to make a point. Mm -hmm. Whereas now we've evolved to the point where it's like, we don't even, we don't even do that. It's just, okay, you, you had your fun with your, your F words and your N words, and we're going to put this in a locker. You can't play with it anymore. You can mention they're there, but you're not allowed to play with them anymore. Yeah. Hmm. And it's probably the way it should be. But I don't know. Um, do you have any other questions for me there? Just because I'm curious what you had. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you say about a four. That's, that's, that's cool. I'm curious to see. Like, I'm re- I can't wait to hear what you, your final <laughs> thoughts are on the book <laughs> once you get to like 790 or 971 or whatever it is. Oh, it's, um, there's like some big stuff coming up that's going to really pivot where I'm at. I, I, I'm, okay. I'm absolutely anti spoiler as, okay. as a rule. So I, I, I think this is a hard book to spoil. You know, a lot of people sort of say like, yeah, it's, it's a lot more about the character development than like big plot points. Mm-hmm. And I think the big plot points of this book are mainly there to serve the character development okay. rather than the other way around. Um, I'm curious, uh, what, do, what do you think? Like, what is your sense of who your audience is that listens to your show? Is it oh, people who, God. Yeah. who like, are people like, yes, I fucking hate that book too. Let's just dunk on this book. I'm here for that. Or are you, you mentioned you, uh, I think before we started some hate mail that you got when you mm. first started of the, the ultra fan folks who were like defensive to the death. Yes, and this early. Is the hill they're going to die on. Like, <laughs> early, who's, who do you feel is like, like who's listening to your show? What's, what's your sense of that at this point? Um, you're, you're right. Early on, I did get some <laughs> uh, very verbiose, well-written hate mail. But yeah, um, and I joked that it was me that sent it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know that was that was honestly my like the intro episode I have for the podcast was completely re-recorded because the first one got such a negative. Just I was you know I, I was I was feeling froggy and uh-huh. it, it was probably a little much, so I re-recorded it. I had oh, yeah. no idea who this was going to be for. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, I think the bulk of my audience are infinite jest fans or i've actually had quite a few who are david was uh david foster wallace fans who Mm -hmm. think infinite jest is a little overrated oh interesting yeah and that's uh, that's not a majority i wouldn't even (laughs) say they were small enough to uh, they were even big enough to call them minority they they were a sliver 
Yeah. But um, hmm. I my hope as we finish up the podcast in the coming weeks and move on to other things, I hmm. hope that these episodes stay up for somebody who's trying to get into the book. Uh-huh. It. I, I almost feel like the wor- the worst sin is people not finishing the book. Yeah. Like I yeah. hated that I never finished it. I hated that it was difficult <laughs> enough for me to not finish. So that was why I came back to uh yeah. conquer. It's it almost a punchline, isn't it? You know, the person who owns Infinite Jest, but it's never read it. Uh, exactly. It's yeah. it, it's so crazy that this book is still in the zeitgeist right now. And it's in the zeitgeist still for two main reasons. Is number one, the fanboys are very fanboyish. And number <sighs> two, so many people give up on this fucking book. Uh-huh. So I mean, it is a long obedience in the same direction to finish this book. Yes. For sure. Like the, I think the first time it took me like three months or something. Mm-hmm. I was reading every day. That's a long time to read one book for sure. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> I would have I would have probably put my head down and been like, all right, I'm getting through this, but doing it every week and the the fact that I have a pace dictated. Yeah. Really that's helpful. Really helps because if I'm yeah. not particularly liking the section, like, well, I only have 30 so pages, so who cares? Yeah. That's a that's a good chunk. Like for Infinite Winter, we were doing 75 pages at a time in a week. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be like a pretty rapid clip. And then I also had to like write a blog post about it, you know. See, that that was what kept me to 30 pages was it was not yeah. only like knowing I would have people on who weren't massive readers, particularly early, early on. I was just trying to get comedians because I knew I couldn't mm-hmm. riff with them. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I figured 30 pages is not too much to ask of somebody. Yeah, it was reasonable. And, totally. Yeah. And yeah. it's also. Except for we, got, we hit that huge footnote or that huge end note about the cult of the train. And I was yeah. like, oh man, I thought I could maybe get through these 30 pages without like a six, six page end note. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saved that for the end. Like I actually completely ignored oh, yeah, okay. my notes. But yeah, the yeah. other thing was just the notes. Summarizing 30 pages is harder. Mm-hmm. Not harder. It's more labor intensive and time consuming mm-hmm. than you might think. Yeah. Do you get a sense of from some of your audience that they're like reading along with you here at this kind of similar interval and it's like oh, a group yeah. read? Yeah, yep. oh, good, cool. Well, I like that. One of the ways I've been promoting the podcast is I have just been on Twitter and I've been looking for those people saying like, well, it's COVID. I guess I should finally read this. And, <laughs> and there's just, been a lot of that, hasn't there? Yep. And just flat, <laughs> just dropping the link, like read it with us. Yeah, cool. It's yeah, I do good think timing. I do think begrudging book club is the number one <laughs> descriptor. That's a good, that's a good, uh, mm-hmm. good. Yeah. That's mm. I like right. that. so speaking of you've got alliteration. To... It's got, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I... the pathos of what you're doing. So hey, academia, writing comedy. We're, we're yeah. all, we're all people of words. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, speaking of comedy, uh, are you a Tim Robinson fan? I know this is like way off topic, but let's, I have no idea who that is. I have no idea who that is, so I'm going to take a guess. Is he a European? No, he's American from Detroit. Okay, no, so I... he's got a show on Netflix called "I Think You Should Leave" with Tim Robinson. I know who the guy is. I didn't know that. Okay. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's got a show called Detroiters as well, with Sam Richardson. It's like his wingman, and I just, I just think like in terms of comedy for me right now in 2020, that's that's what's up. That's the funniest thing that I can think of that exists. I tell every person that I talked to about comedy, like Tim Robinson, Tim Robinson. He was a staff writer for SNL apparently, and they never 
ran one of his skits because they were so Ugh. bonkers. <laughs> and then so Netflix just gave him a whole show and he just did six episodes of all of his skits. And they are, they're, um, it's like they put you in a diff- different stratosphere. See, I think I think I watched the first episode and I unfortunately yeah. was just in a headspace where I couldn't give complete control to it. The only the only sketch yeah. I remember is it's the girls at the park or a restaurant and they're taking photos yeah, the with each other yeah. and being <laughs> yeah. passive aggressive, like you know, one yeah, one's like out here with these two dummies, and then of course there's the one girl like Sunday fun day. <laughs> like out here with these two fatherless cunts, like, whoa, what? <laughs> What we're being fucking on fish piss with these wet shows. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like yeah. that dude. <laughs> All right. So you ready to get into our notes for this week? Sure. Let's let's get into the passage. Cool. All right. Um, typically I will dot these with conversation points, and I didn't have a whole lot this week. So anytime you have something to say or something sounds okay. interesting, tell me to shut my fucking yapper and we'll get to it. All right. Uh 714. Kate Gompert has a splitting headache and swelling eye as a red apparition fades before her. Poor Tony rushed between Gompert and Ruth Van Cleve, yanking both their purses. Cleves snapped, but Gompert's did not, and she got yanked face first into a light post. She is currently being annoyed by a homeless man who said he witnessed the whole thing as Ruth Van Cleve chased poor Tony down the streets. So first thing, we get a rare thing in a chunk of Infinite Jest. We have a lot of like quick mini chapters here mm-hmm. that yeah. like everything's just summed up and then we're immediately on to something else which i'm seeing more as we go along and the action i mean specifically right here we have again a mm-hmm. bunch of characters who have not interacted being pushed into the same zone at the same time yeah totally so yeah lots of time with poor tony in the um armenian bathroom stall <laughs> how long ago was that <laughs> that was actually that's quite like- a saga isn't it yeah, I feel like that was like, it almost feels like that was like 400 pages ago. But, <laughs> okay. but it makes reference to that in this section, right? Like, right. It seems, it seems like chronologically, chrono- chronologically, not we're not far away from it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when uh, in the previous episode, Maddie Pemulus was watching out the restaurant window as poor Tony walked by. And this is him right. just having woken up from uh, the seizure coma and uh-huh. going, well, I think it was just a seizure, but yeah. So he's just out on the street. So he is still looking like death. As a matter of uh-huh. fact, they said a few times he is on that post seizure feel good high, uh-huh. which I guess is a thing people with seizures have. Yeah, I would. I can't. I don't know. Mm. Um, was Maddie Pemulus in the unexamined life when he sees poor Tony go by? The name of the the bar. That that must have been it. I did the not- unexamined life. That's a hell I of a love, name for a bar. I do love the title of that. Very like the, the Socrates reference is, <laughs> is pretty tremendous there. <laughs> the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, okay. And that's a good place to drink by the sound of it. You know? Sounds um, it. Where is a better place to forget your problems than unexamined <laughs> life? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I miss bars so much. One of my favorite yeah. things to do used to be, <laughs> and this just goes to show what a misanthrope I am. One of my favorite things to do would be just to stop in at a bar, a local bar in the middle of the day and just see like the local characters who oh, like the day drinking crowd. Yeah, The day drinking crowd. Day drinkers have great stories. Oh I, yeah. I, I believe it. Yeah. Would you, do you ever just go into bars and like pull up a stool and write, write, comedy like do you just pull out a notebook and and I'm just actually, kind of like let the the hum of humanity around you sort of 
foster your comedic juice? I actually not really. I tend to yeah. do my my writing style. Uh, I still believe that the key to comedy is just the dumb thoughts that everybody has during a day and just having the wherewithal to pluck them out of right. the sky and yeah. write them down. Like, and gotcha. then I take that note home and then I work on it from there. Like I was uh-huh. at a, I was at a, a friend's house, like backyard social distance thing yesterday. And I <laughs> like they qualified that like, I'm not an asshole. I'm wearing a mask. Like this is, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of assholes. Like a guy, sure. I know, a guy I know yeah. on Facebook was bragging today saying, Hey, I got COVID and I'm fine. Just go out and get it. I'm living my life up. And like, dude, you're a fucking idiot. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah that is, that is not helpful, buddy. Well, I'm going against him in a roast battle in three weeks. So I have plenty of things calling him a fucking oh. super spreader. <laughs> um is this roast battle like on zoom or something how's this working uh, these days? no it's gonna be we still have like a lot of outdoor so i don't know oh, how cool, it cool. is yep. where you guys are we have a lot of breweries in our neck of the woods mm-hmm. and they all have like patioed outdoor seating so we're all outdoor awesome we're all trying to do as best as we can before yeah. everything shuts down again which is probably going to happen yeah. What are you in New Jersey? What's your neighborhood right now? I'm are in, you in New York. I'm in, no, I'm in North Philadelphia. Oh, I'm in Philly. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right oh, I, I went too far. Uh, there was well, you're from uh, New Jersey, right? I'm originally from South Jersey, but it's literally, okay. it, it's, it's still the Philadelphia media market. I'm so close by. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. But, uh, there were two parents at this party with like their infant and they were talking about like, Oh yeah, it's fun having a family member piss on you. And I got to mention like, Oh no, my, my brother pissed on me like four years ago. Like, Oh, is he younger? Like he's 30. Uh, he's, he's a sleepwalker. He came out to me and I, I hit on the notion that like, yeah, I'm sitting there watching TV in my mother's living room and my brother walks out and all I can see is the silhouette. I'm like, Hey Ken, what's up? And he starts pissing on me. And like, Ken, what the <laughs> fuck? And this wasn't even the comedy thing. The comedy thing is when I point out like, and you know, sleepwalkers, how they're all so indignant. He's like, fucking sorry, I guess. And, and I, I went and wrote. No remorse. Exactly. So I just went and wrote a whole thing on how sleepwalkers are indignant assholes. That just. Nice. So yeah, that's, that's where my good. dumb comedy from. I went a very long walk to answer that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool yeah okay so i I like i like your point that we have some characters converging now like um Mm -hmm. ruth ann cleave uh who doesn't i don't think she gets a lot of airtime but like clonette henderson does get some airtime especially in the the fight with the canucks that you mentioned and she's like kicking one of them in the in the head with her heel and saying like motherfucker every time Mm -hmm. and emphasizing (laughs) the the fu syllable i always remember that like you know going back to wallace's you know, maybe eight times shallow sort of stereotypical mm-hmm. um, representation of people of color, you know, like I, I watched a lot of like Compton movies when I was like in 10th grade, I was really into like rap culture and stuff and you know, boys in the hood and all that nice. kind of stuff. And that's kind of like what that vibe felt like to me, you know, of how Wallace is capturing uh, Clinette and, mm-hmm. and her like kicking the Canuck in the head, which I think he dies, right? Like her spiked heel goes right through his eye. Yeah. I, I think they were pretty explicit <laughs> that they <Jeez>. just <laughs> yeah. erased his map. Um, I do. I do love that term erased his map. I didn't like it at first. I, yeah. I, I feel like it was kind of saved for me when multiple characters were mentioned like, Oh, this is kind of a euphemism in this world. 
Yeah, like yeah, like, yeah exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and and it gets some kind of it gets different treatments. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, erased his own personal map, and the variations on it are just kind of riffed on throughout the book in ways that are, that I that I found winsome uh, on first read, and and still do I think. Yeah, it's go screw uh, is another you know recurring. I feel like you Why hear go. You still hear go screw every now and again in the, in the right in the right neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh-huh. If you if you park too close to the wrong house, um, mm-hmm. okay. So we have Randy Lenz is out on the streets, concerned he may be followed. He is walking behind two Asian women who are walking at a clip that suggests they each have several more legs than they do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it paints a picture. I'll put it that way. Um, his cocaine high is wearing off and he's plagued by a frozen sinus sensation. He has been kicked out of Ennit and is now walking the streets, hiding out, still disguised. He never sleeps or eats and remains in constant motion. He sneaks up behind the Asian women, both carrying large shopping bags. Lens has heard and believes that Asians religions forbid banking. So they tend to carry their entire personal wealth on their person at all times. He's hoping these two have mass currency in those shopping bags as he runs up behind them, gaining speed for a snatch. That's a new stereotype I never heard before. That, uh, yeah, there's some pretty like dark stuff in this section. Hey, like, um, he gets into like monkey language, exclamatories mm. have an explosive ricocheting sound to them. Uh, orientoid is a word that gets re- that recurs oh, a lot. God, here. I didn't even take um, a note of that. You're right, I forgot that. <laughs> like, like it's a pretty gross passage. And so, I was talking about this with um, with my wife Rachel, who's who's also read this book, and she was actually a, a guest on our show at like right when she finished reading it, mm-hmm. and we talked about like what's it like to read this book for the first time. Uh, her and her best friend Amy uh, both read it contiguously and, and talked about it and. So we were talking about it tonight and like I was, I was throughout the week as I was reading it, I was texting, you know, my co-host and some other friends who were part of, part of this community. And like, mm. do we think that like, okay, Randy Lenz, I think is the most morally reprehensible, uh, morally bankrupt character in this novel. Mm. Um, it's pretty obvious when he's like stalking the neighborhoods, putting cats in his yeah. steel sack bags and smashing them and, you know, all that stuff. They're uh, there. Not to mention there. Yeah, totally. Um, are you a video gamer, by the way? Have you played Last of Us 2? I have not. I okay. pretty much exclusively stick to retro games just to keep okay. myself from falling down the void with it. Yeah. There's a there's a pretty um, early reference to Randy Lenz in that video game where someone Ooh. kills a zombie and they go, there. <laughs> And it kind of recurs throughout and I actually know someone who worked on the game. Um, and so I messaged him right away on Facebook. I was like, Hey, was, did you put this in the game? He's like, uh, I did work on that scene. I can neither confirm nor deny that this was an infinite jest reference. And I was like, nice. He said his you know, department head didn't want him them putting in like explicit literary pop cultural references into mm-hmm. the game or whatever. But I think you can get away with some for, for this book because it's pretty, pretty inside. Um, but yeah, anyway, so the question like, is, is this really racist categorization of these Chinese women? Is it from Lenz's psyche? 
but it is still written in third person omniscient here, right? So you're like, so it sounds like Wallace the narrator. Here, here is what I've hit on, and we talked about this yeah. in a few episodes. Uh, this goes back to Gately using the N word yeah. exclusively yes. as a script for right. black people. Mm -hmm. Um, the style that we've hit on that Wallace does is what we've been calling a soft third person by which yeah. i mean obviously the narrator and omniscient because he knows the thoughts and feelings of these people yeah. but the narrator is using language that is within the lexicon of the per the first person so the yeah. first person and i'd say it's actually very much in the theme of the book the first person bleeds into and colors the third person narrative that's mm -hmm. been my personal interpretation, which uh, yeah. which that uh, that held up for me. I mean, it, yeah. it, the the only thing is that I would be one hundred percent satisfied with that explanation, mm -hmm. if not for the fact that Wallace feels the need to put various other ticks in completely unrelated characters that are like. There's no reason Don Gately should know what the word picayune is and we use it several times in a chapter. Okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. Multiple people doing the end but so but thing. Like right. yeah. that's that's kind of where it falls apart for me because it's like, oh well, buddy, I'm trying to think you're doing this great thing here, but <laughs> if that's what you're doing here, you're being really lazy right over here. Gotcha. Yeah, okay, I see. I mean, maybe there's kind of like a, a bleed effect where it's like there's consistent elements of narration that are authorial. And then there are some that are like in the brain voice of the given character that we're, mm -hmm. we're hanging in with. I, I, I mean, I think in this section, we're getting kind of Rand, Randy Lenz's like disgusting racist worldview. Yes. Uh, in the way that he's, you know, thinking about these people he's preying on. Um, but having said that, like Rachel made the point that, you know, you know, maybe that's true, but it it would be a better served argument if Wallace had better representation for people of color in his work, if he had more yeah. fully realized female characters throughout the body of his work, which I take that point, you know, fairly. Um, but I don't get the impression that Wallace was like a racist person, you know, like I think he was, you know, he's a well-educated, you know, kind of blue blood East Coast type um See, that doesn't seem to me to be the person that wallace was you know mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's a it's a fascinating See, element of this novel isn't it something he has that works against him and it it frustrates me as uh i i hate to use the term edgy as somebody who tries <laughs> to do kind of edgy comedy a little yeah. bit and yeah. I, I hate that word. It's just the only thing. I, I, I like making people hate <laughs> me and then getting them back. That's all it is. Uh, okay. But there's a way to go about it and to see him miss the opportunity. The, the number one thing he fucked up is like, you can explain that away, but then at the same time, you have the black man who almost assaults Erdity because he wants to hug him. And mm -hmm. that character, who is one of the only characters that's... Uh, characters of color that is given some time and he uh -huh. looks just it's like he plucked him it's like he plucked doughboy out of boys from the hood and plopped uh -huh. him which is not really the best representation right. yeah yeah totally to have that. and then, yeah yeah totally and it's and it's weird so like you mentioned cultural historical context earlier this is mm -hmm. like 1996 i mean it's it's hard to hold someone in 96 to the same standards of like wokeness that, right. uh, that we have in 2020 but that's not to say that that 
category, you know, characterizing people in this way wasn't bad. It's bad for sure. Of course. Yeah. Right. Like, so, um, it's, it's a, it's a really complicated nuanced conversation. And like, I'm, I've been grappling with it for a while and other people in Wallace scholarship community are like really wrestling with it. And, um, See, I, I wonder, yeah. like he, he lived in 2008. I'm surprised that they never, he never got to really address it. I know he didn't make hey. it to like the peak of where we are now, where everybody's like throwing yeah. beloved works at their authors and saying, explain yourself. But like, yeah. he must've gotten a little bit of that lean because that, that, that wave was already coming up while he was still here. Totally. Um, yeah. It's, it's so like, I, I would love to know what kinds of address Wallace would have given to this stuff had, mm -hmm. if he was still living now, you know, um, even too with like me too stuff. I'm really curious to see like how his life and approach would have shaken out. I mean, I guess maybe one of the best ways that we have to maybe possibly knowing is like, so his last novel was The Pale King, which mm -hmm. was, you know, published posthumously. And he was kind of, he was working on it when he died. Mm -hmm. That book is about like primarily about white people in, mm -hmm. you know, do, doing insurance adjusting in well, Illinois. I think that's it's another like, thing. This is another thing that works against him is that as yeah, opposed maybe. to many other authors that we've seen like, oh, well, they evolved at a certain point, so it's okay. He was extremely not prolific with his fiction writing. So it's not like you have, have later three novels. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, well, you see, he got around to it by the pale King. It's just like, nah, it's just, he has dot, dot gone. So we only have so many examples of what he, you know, him putting together a, a more sympathetic, realistic character. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Um, I mean, he, his, like his books take up a quite a, quite a large portion of one of my bookshelves, like almost an entire shelf, you know, between mm -hmm. all the short story collections and essay collections and stuff. So, I mean, his output was pretty radical for how young he was when he died. Oh yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's really, I'm really curious to know what the last 12 years would have looked like for his output on some of these questions for sure. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a shame. And it's one of the things that makes me more, more lax on him. Cause I mean, you can only, you, yeah. you can only hold a dead person. So responsible. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a tricky, it's a tricky thing about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's keep, let's keep pushing on. Cool. Here. Press on. Uh, poor Tony knows the secret to running in high heels, run on your toes with so much forward momentum. Your heels never come into play. Tony is out of breath running with two purses from Ruth Van Cleave, who he had not anticipated would pursue him so much. Tony counteracted Ruth's cries for help with similar cries of help, flummoxing and incapacitating bystanders on whom to assist. Tony knows he is close to the Antoine brothers shop and tries to outjuke Ruth, whom he is thinking of as the thing, but to no use. He even sacrifices his beloved feather boa when Ruth gets a grip on it. Tony is ragged and breathing bad with bleeding feet and Ruth Van Cleave is getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, yeah. Here we literally get like a physical, like we're we're jumping back and forth. We're seeing poor Tony getting closer and we see, we see Len see poor Tony and then yeah. we're, we're about to see the wheelchair assassins in the Antoine shop. We don't even yeah. get to that in this chunk, but like we are on a mm -hmm. collision course where some shit's about to go down. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever seen the movie Magnolia, the, uh, the Paul yes. Thomas Anderson film? Yes, I have. There's a lot of like similar uh, stuff going on here, I think, right? Where mm -hmm. like 
you got these disparate characters, there's all these storylines, and then they, after three hours, they're starting to slowly converge and some of them begin to intertwine and overlap. And, and like Paul Thomas Anderson was a student of Wallace's huh. in the 90s, um, quite briefly, I think. So you, you, there's kind of a kindred okay. like narrative situation happening, I think. Is this, is this book going to end with it raining frogs? Because I don't know if I can do that <laughs> right now. Um, I, I said before that I'm anti-spoiler, but I will say <laughs> the answer is no <laughs> to that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but one thing that's interesting is that Wallace wrote in a letter to Don DeLillo that um, if you see the movie Magnolia on the marquee, run in the opposite direction. <laughs> it, is like, it is like bad in a grad schoolish kind of way. Mm. Um, so Wallace, like, even though he was uh, Anderson's teacher at one point, he was like very derisive about that film. <laughs> oh, that sucks. See, you know what the irony is, is that despite not really liking what would be called pretentious books, I love mm. the shit out of pretentious movies. Like, <laughs> they are made for me. I will, okay. I will watch Seventh Seal every single day and be just happy with that. Okay. Huh, um, something about something about like visual depiction versus on the page. Just it's there's a pretension that doesn't exist on film that exists in in a book or something for you. I think in I I think in books there's just you can you can look at a film and you could like oh I miss that I need to rewind, but I feel like just the way our our brains are wired. I think you only naturally uh, retain so much information that is taken in the form of reading. Mm -hmm. And I find particularly pretend like, um, you know, when they try to do long, long ass sentences with no period at the end, I've read yeah. psychological studies on how like your brain processes and like mm -hmm. comparts information away. And that long sentences like that mm -hmm. at a certain point, your brain is just like, when can this end? So I can, <laughs> put a bow on this idea and remember it for later oh my gosh have you heard of a book called ducks newberry port by lucy ellman i can't say i have uh i think it came out last year and it was up for the booker prize um it didn't win but i, I had a chance to read it this year i read it kind of like right at the start of the big quarantine lockdown in march mm -hmm. and it's a i think it's a thousand thirty pages give or take thousand wow. twenty and it's from the perspective of a, of a housewife in Ohio who bakes pies as a day job and she has four kids. And most of the book, like the main action of the book is one sentence long. Jesus. There are a few sections along the way that have like a short you know, page or two about a mountain lion and her cubs. And it's mm -hmm. kind of, you get a little bit of that story punctuated along the way. But um, the rest of it is what is just one sentence. And each sort of clause begins with the fact that, da 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 da. Um, so when you say that, like some people are like, "Wow, Wallace wrote like a four-page sentence without any periods," and I feel like Lucy Elman has like completely obliterated this record. <laughs> like, <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah, completely. Michael Jordan on like Magic Johnson driving to the hoop or something you know that is one of the things i love about the 21st century and the new information age is it <laughs> seems like these massive accomplishments are just getting destroyed quicker and quicker mm -hmm. like i remember the first time on youtube where i saw i i play guitar i'm a pretty good guitarist if i say so myself and then <laughs> a week on youtube and i have watched 
30, 12 year olds that could smoke me in anything yeah. ever. And it's just like, okay, well, uh, I guess I'm going to become a comedian and a podcaster instead because 12 year olds have me beat in the guitar department. Yeah. New levels of humility in the, in the 21st century for, for us. Hey? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That's uh... um, yeah. So what's your, what's your take on Randy lens? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you make of this dude? I think he's a real piece of shit and I'm actually, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not comfortable with uh, my, when I was a boy, my, my dad run around, ran around with a pretty unsavory crowd of like biker gang guys. And okay. I'm actually a little disturbed at the familiarity I have wow. with a lot yeah. of uh, Lenz's behavior. Just yeah. that kind of, you, you, you get the image of like a fucking snake slinking down the sidewalk and you just, totally. you, all you know is like, I just don't, I want to stay away from wherever that's going. As far as possible. Conversely, how do you like? What is your sense of poor Tony Kraus? Do you do you feel like a greater sense of empathy for poor Tony? I, I'm still a little just jury's bit, out. Yeah, I, yeah. I I feel like poor Tony is there to serve a purpose that I'm not aware of yet. In that you know, thousand little cogs all doing their work, kind of mm -hmm. way. But yeah, gotcha. I don't. Uh, not a lot not a lot sticks out to me i i personally yeah. didn't really care for much of the uh the stuck in the toilet thing just because <laughs> for, for some reason when we get to like bodily function stuff in literature my brain turns off i don't know yeah. why i talked about this with somebody on a previous episode that something about literature in in novels like mm -hmm. when they start talking about like farts and diarrhea for me it's like <laughs> i don't I don't, it's a, it's not even a grossness. It's just like a, why, you know, yeah. have you spent any time with Wallace's brief interviews with hideous men? No, I collection yet. I am almost certainly going to do a series on that someday. I, I okay. definitely need a break from Mr. Wallace for a bit. After this, I'm so. sure that's true for, for most people after they finish this book, but there's a short story in that collection about a bathroom attendant at like a high, uh, you know, like a really expensive restaurant where there's a bathroom attendant who like hands you the towel after you've washed your hands. And it's just him basically like recording the like sounds, the toilet sounds that he hears all day. Like it is, it is so visceral and so disgusting, mm -hmm. but it's also quite funny. And I, in some ways feel a sense of endearment to it, even though it's like really repulsive. <laughs> I still think one of the most disgusting things I ever read was a uh, Joe Hill who is Stephen King's son. Okay. I'm actually a big fan of his novels, but he has a collection of short stories. Mm -hmm. And in one of them, he has a story of a guy who basically, uh, just like a sex fiend in a, in a hotel jacuzzi, uh, puts his anus against the suction thing. <laughs> and okay. I'll let you get your own descriptions in that, but it is, it is vile. Okay. Do we have yeah. like internal organs being like siphoned oh, out, yeah. out of the body and thing? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's pretty right. And lurid descriptions of like where they are inside him at this moment and what direction they're going. Ooh, that's grisly. Yeah. God. Yeah. That's a hard pass for me. Yeah. Um, 
I think in this section too, where we have poor Tony running away from uh, Ruth, like he refers to as the black creature several mm. times. I think I actually and didn't I pick up. Is... I, I didn't pick up on the black. I noted creature, mm. but creature is kind of recurring. Uh -huh. I think this is maybe kind of like further evidence to that point we were talking about that like this is like that character's brain voice and mm -hmm. and that character's prejudices kind of seeping into the third third person omniscient text or whatever mm -hmm. um we see it even too a little bit further on with marat and he's like his french you know english is learning language syntax is seeping into his own thought english mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like he's not even saying it out loud but he says something you know like um, the smells were the under of an arm from the facial skin, <laughs> you know, not like an armpit yeah. or an under the under of an arm, which is such a like French Canadian syntax yeah. when they're speaking English. So I think we see that that's sort of uh, coloring literary color. Yeah. A lot through these like 30 pages that, that mm. we read this week. Yeah. Right. I'm going to jump in here. So we have the AFR at the uh, the AFR has tracked the entertainment down to the Antoine Brothers sto uh, store. It still took several days to find a copy. Fortier, and I believe this might be the first time we actually see Fortier on the scene and not just being discussed. Yeah, um, that's probably right. The leader of the USA cell made sure the search was thorough and clean. They went through every cartridge one at a time with a volunteer doing the viewing. They put closed signs up to ensure no intruders. Specifically, they are seeking a copy owned by Duplessis, the sniffy Canadian VIP Gately accidentally killed. It is hinted that they possibly traced it to Antoine via whoever assisted Gately in that burglary. Every copy they have found has been read-only, meaning it cannot be duplicated. Only a master can be duplicated, and that is what they're searching for. The belief is that, and I think this is the first time we really get the crystal, like, this is why they're doing this. The belief is that if Quebec can copy the entertainment and reign terror on the U.S., Canada will look so bad that they will have no choice but to forcibly secede Quebec to independ independence to save their own hide. So, yeah, I know it's commented on before yeah. where it's like, what exactly? Like, What's I thought the, the whole, game exactly. And I think that's yeah. the first time it's actually spelled out. Um, mm. a, foot, a footnote informs us that Fortier intends to force Marit to view the entertainment, that he knows Marit is out for revenge, not for his ill wife, but for Marit's brothers who died in the train ritual that Fortier personally witnessed. Fortier had to contact their Southwest office, possibly steeply. They believed that a relative of the filmmaker, an athlete, Oren, was responsible for giving the entertainment to Duplessis in the first place, and steeply is stalking Oren in the hope of more in the hope of more and access to the master. Mm. So, yeah, so we get a lot spelled out very well there. That's true. Uh, hey, yeah. So when I talked earlier about the plot, like not really mattering all that much, there's some mm. like pretty plot-heavy beats going on in this in this section. Hey. Oh, yeah. Well, now we have a connection between Oren and Duplessis, which I don't think has even been hinted at before. Right. Yeah. Even when you said that just now, I'm like, I don't think I even picked that up reading it like this week. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that that Duplessis section early on in the book where uh, his place gets burglared by Don Gately mm -hmm. and he's got the head cold. I think about this so often, man, like Murray's like, please do not like gag my mouth my nose it is a brick of the snot <laughs> and i just think about what an awful way to die that would be like you can't even breathe through this <laughs> through your nasally yeah. congested 
Oh, just a slow, a slow sniffly oh, death. Asphyxiation. Oh, it's so rough. It's so rough. Um, have you talked about the MacGuffin aspect of this on your show before? We have not actually. Um, okay. I, I, I guess because we've seen, as opposed to, um, I can't think of a lot of literary MacGuffins, and not that I haven't read them, I just don't have them on the top of my head. But if I think about them in movies, Usually their usefulness is not really displayed that explicitly as we've mm-hmm. seen with the entertainment. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, so the entertainment is more of more in the forefront as like a, um, a motivating force for a lot of the characters in this novel. Right. I, I would still yeah. say it, it has most of the characteristics of a MacGuffin aside from yeah, the fact yeah. that yeah. it's, it's so tied into the theme of a lot of the rest of the book. Sure. Yeah, of course. Americans being addicted to, you know, although I, yeah, yeah. North Americans. (laughs) I I had uh, my comedian friend Rusty Wright on a few episodes where we did did a footnote episode and we talked about Big Red Sun. Yes, I listened Um, to some of that. Yeah. So, but when I told him the main gist of Infinite Jest that it was about this tape that's so entertaining it kills you and mm. i just love somebody who's not in on this who hasn't like learned all the nuances just going like that's like bullshit sci-fi 101 what the fu- why do people like this it's just like I, I like somebody just breaking it down like that every now and again <laughs> yeah totally my friend uh, uh who's a wallace scholar his name's bill latanzi he like made a film like a documentary film about infinite jest uh he hasn't been able to get it published or, or finished because of like um, the Wallace estate's wishes, uh, which is true for a lot of projects that can't get off the ground, actually. Um, but he has, he like traces this idea back to a, an episode of The Monkees, where there was a fatally really? addictive entertainment that characters couldn't stop watching. Um, and he's got a whole section of his documentary on hmm. on like that being kind of like one of the origin points of the entertainment in, in infinite chess i love that i did so that's that's kind of a funny connection yeah. i did postulate with somebody on uh, the show that the, the entire novel feels very 90s specifically with the entertainment totally. aspect that i wonder if he hadn't written this a decade later with the explosion of the internet if it mm-hmm. wouldn't have been quite so much about entertainment as specifically information information overwhelming yes yeah 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 like the neil postman idea kind of although neil postman wrote and um was amusing ourselves to death it's like Mm. the 80s i think like 85 or something Mm -hmm. um which is hilarious when you consider the context of the 1980s and like television and movies that you had to access through cable or go to the vhs or go to the movies you know like mm-hmm. and our excessive the accessibility of media is just bananas now it's so ubiquitous it really is mind-blowing to the, the, <laughs> the fact that you need to you need to learn to be like your own dad now and be like son son put that phone down for a little bit you don't need go outside and look yeah. at the sun <laughs> yeah you're living with like two selves inside of you who are constantly warring for uh dominance you know yeah. Which dog are you going to feed? That mm. kind of idea. God. Yeah. Um, okay. So we see Joel for a brief minute here. In sobriety, life goes from not caring to obsessive caring swiftly. Joel is now concerned about her teeth, which tend not to do well after smoking cocaine for years. 
She lays in bed and dreams of Gately administering to her teeth. She gets a kick thinking of his massive fingers, ungloved, probing her mouth. That they share the same concerns about her dental hygiene. That's what you want in a man. Uh, the fantasy turns ugly as she sees her unveiled face in the dental mirror, ravaged by cocaine use. And in her mouth, she sees multiple rows of canines like a shark that go deep into her throat like a sarlacc pit. That's my note there, but that's what I pictured immediately. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't remember that description. <laughs> What's a yeah, Sarlacc no, pit? Is that yeah. from like Dune or something? Oh, uh, Sarlacc pit is from Star Wars? Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Okay, it's, yeah, cool. it's just a whole, but you're right in the Dune aspect in that it's in like a sandy world and mm. it's just like a row of teeth in the, yeah. in, in the sand going down. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Um, Okay. Upon returning to Antitois after calling the Southwest, the men have found Duplessis's entertainment cartridge, labeled only with a yellow smiley face. Two young volunteers die to confirm this, one of which was named Desjardins, <laughs> which as a Philadelphia person, I still remember Desjardins very fondly from the Flyers. Oh, yeah. Uh, Louis? I don't remember what is, I don't remember his first name. <laughs> I can never remember their first names. Like I was a child of the NHL in the nineties. Like I watched NHL hockey a mm-hmm. lot in the in the early nineties. Um, and then I took a, a lot of a lot of years off from watching hockey until like two thousand eleven again. See, you know what? Getting in with some of the themes of the book, I would be a much bigger hockey fan. But uh, the distribution model for hockey is very strange because. You have the NFL where the games are on local broadcast, but then when it came to like baseball or basketball, most basketball or hockey, it was all on like the local Comcast sports station. But as somebody who's been on the streaming kick for like six years now, I just haven't had, you need to have cable to have that. And I just like NHL center ice, which is like, I don't know, 150 bucks a year or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's always the thing when it comes to me in all sports, it's like, I'm not, I'm not a football fan. I'm an Eagles fan. I'm not a hockey fan. I'm a flyers fan. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. I don't watch, I don't like follow any teams except for the Vancouver Canucks. I don't really like care about what's happening Mm -hmm. in the playoffs, except for what's happening with the Vancouver Canucks. Like, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Like, uh, honestly, I was never like, I, I cheered on the Eagles when they played, but then after they won the Super Bowl, I was kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'm done for this lifetime. (laughs) My job here is finished. (laughs) Exactly. Well, especially like the Phillies won the World Series a few years ago from like the Tampa Bay Rays. So who gives a shit? Then they were up against the Yankees the next year and they lost like, okay, so we can't beat a real team. But that's why the Eagles thing was so cathartic for everyone because not only did we finally win the Super Bowl, but we beat the fucking Patriots to do it. Oh my gosh. Like the Patriots. High five through the zoom screen. Fuck the Patriots. Yeah. Yeah, That is, that is just a consistency that should not exist in sports to make the playoffs or to make the Super Bowl. Eight was a nine out of 10 years, eight out of 10 years. Yeah. Win like most of them. That's boring. Uh, What's, what's funny is like nineties bulls shit right there. Yeah. It was, it, it was a brief blip in the national scene, but it happened to happen during the Phillies thing. So in Philly, people still refer to Tom Brady as that loser who kisses his son on the mouth because, because there was a video that went viral a little bit before it, like getting ready for the game and like his 13 year old son, he just gives a big wet one on the mouth. And so that's still like, we, we remember it very much. Sure. Yeah. It's hard to forget something. Oh yeah. Okay. Not visceral. Yeah. Um, so, oh yeah. So 
all the, the they can't find the master, which right. Fortier more or less expected, giving the unique shape and sizing of the casing. There's no way the Antoine brothers wouldn't have tested it out. So he was mm-hmm. pretty sure it wasn't there when he saw them just up and walking around. Right. But having recovered, having recovered the read only, now they knew the only option was to find the original well within their grasp by going through the Incandenza family. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's benefit that the author's family was mostly local. They had recruited three agents on the inside of Enfield, a student, presumably John Wayne. I'm just guessing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, an instructor and an employee. So Putin court seems to be <laughs> the other. And uh, that uh, seems like a fair guess. They yeah. teach like French Canadian mm-hmm. uh, history, right? For which is that Ted Schacht is writing the paper on the jus de prochain train, the, the cult of the last train which is footnote i i, I thought it was uh, I, I thought it was struck oh is it jim struck yeah okay okay i was too confused um i actually i have i have that tucked away at the end so we can get <laughs> okay. to that there cool cool um they are also aware of the last known location of the entertainment's star at a local radio station they kidnapped yeah. an engineer who told them all he knew merely at the threat of torture Maraith believed him but still followed through on the torture just to be sure um, which they're nice enough to say the engineer lasted longer than the average USA interrogatee. Right. That's good. Yeah. Um, the poor radio engineer would become their first test subject of the entertainment. He'd be given a saw. This one confuses me actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is gross. <laughs> He'd be given a saw and told to cut off a finger every time he wanted the cartridge replayed. Mm -hmm. Uh, they need other test subjects as well. And members were now patrolling the neighborhood outside the shop for people not too drugged up. So we have a few things right there. We have, we know that in the vicinity, we have lens, we have poor Tony, we have Gompert, we have cleave just in the vicinity where they're looking for people to test this on. Right. Yeah. Um, Some of them seem like likely candidates. Yes, they do. (laughs) One of the things that confuses me, though, as cool, uh, honestly, in a horror movie kind of way, kind of cool, a saw, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but I would not have thought that they would be lucid enough to have any kind of like the way they've been shown. Yeah, exactly. The way they've been shown to be so comatose. It really didn't translate for me being like, all right, if you want to see it again, then here's the saw. Like I would imagine them just like looking off all googly eyed. Yeah. Like the medical attache that we is the first person we see watching the film Mm -hmm. seems to have that kind of like totally checked out in another universe, you know, hypnotist, hypnotic state kind of situation. But yeah, I actually didn't, I hadn't remembered this detail about the saw and the digits until rereading it just now. Um, Which funny thing about a book that's over a thousand pages, you don't remember some of the finer details like four years later. (laughs) That's why you get to go back and reread it. It actually is. um, So I hate to even suggest this to you, Jesse, at this point, Uh like rereading this book is one of the more rewarding literary experiences of my life, I would say. Really? Because reading it again probably sucks. I get it. But like all the like these tiny details that we're getting now, when you read from like page one, you're starting to see all of this stuff in the early stuff of the book. And you're like, oh man, I can just identify and put to like you can just puzzle piece it together in a way that you certainly could not you didn't have the tools for the first time you read it um so 
it's just like I'm put that on the on the burner for maybe 10 years down the line, whatever, okay. 20 even. Rereading it is has a lot of people I know think that it is a fun, cool experience because you get way, way, way more out of the book on the second pass. <sighs> okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it someday. I'll do I'll do it when I'm out of ideas and I need to come I hate back Infinite Jest again. Redux. The podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh Jumping back into it, we see Lens. Uh, Lens was right. The bags were heavy and the women were weightless. He snatched their bags and ran past. He heard a loud crash nearby and saw poor Tony and Ruth Van Cleave. Uh, Lens gets far enough away to slow to a walk. He notices two trash truck guys smoking crack and walks past, ignoring them, looking for a remote yet well-lit enough place to sort through the bags and see what he has. So that's just a little beat there. I find the next section more interesting, enough so that I wrote it in all caps. Remy mm. Marat is at Ennit, yep. which is kind of jarring because we have mm. only seen him on the steps of Tucson watching yes. the city burn this whole time. And suddenly right. he is right there with all our, uh, obviously a little late to the game as we just saw Gately show up, not Gately, Steeply show up at uh, Enfield very yep. recently before this. Yeah. So, um, and before we dive into that, I just want to like the, the sentence about the lens section there, he's going through the alley and there's the guys, the garbage truck, how he whispers to himself, Jesus, what a lot of fucked up ass eating fucking losers. <laughs> and that's how uh, the section ends. And you're like, Randy lens, like, that's a bit hypocritical. Don't you think buddy? <laughs> like that's more or less how most people would describe you. Um, it, that gives me that gives us kind of a window into his psyche that yeah. uh, is some somewhat illuminating maybe. Mr. Randy Lenz, if you ask me, I think the rehab you need is uh, in the mirror. Okay, you just <laughs> Michael Jackson's "Man in the Mirror" comes on, like <laughs> not to be too heavy-handed or anything. <laughs> Strangling the cats in the mirror. There, there. Uh, I don't know why. I, I always remember it as there, there, but yeah. Anyway, that's oh, yeah. the point. Um, so, uh, but yes, Murat is at the mm-hmm. Ennett Recovery House in his wheelchair. Not at all what I was expecting, but I'm excited. That's a deep dive, isn't it? Oh yeah. So the the AFR research is getting very personal and, and up close mm-hmm. to like our primary protagonist of the book now. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like the walls are closing in a little bit, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it does. So we have him. He's trying to get uh, into Ennit. He's listening to someone talk about a cult they were in where they would burn currency, which a neat one. Uh, the one detail I like that is uh, the leader known as the one drove a Rolls Royce, but only drove it in that he ever kept it in neutral while his believers pushed it around. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, I like that. Like um, the other cult leader who made the the people crawl around slither on their bellies like snakes mm-hmm. <laughs> on our to embrace our snake nature it was cleansing <laughs> serious slithering they took wire and bound their arms and legs at least your wire wasn't barbed oh <laughs> um, god yeah that's a, that's a quite a good exchange I, like I, I do love the constant pithy one-upsmanship of all these aa mm-hmm. groups 
Like one yeah. of, one of the funniest lines to me in the whole book, is, and it's not even a concise line, mm-hmm. is after the woman who talks about having the baby that was stillborn and oh. having the umbilical cord. That whole gross story, and then he just drops at the end like the crowd really ID'd. Of course, more than half of them had worse lives than this, and like just just flippantly dropped that in there. Such a delicious little touch. Oh, that's good. That is one of the more haunting scenes from this book, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's so great. Mm. Um, so we have Marat is wearing a veil. Apparently, this is the interview process to enter Ennit, and Marat has chosen to present as another veiled person, presumably to be accepted as someone to ID with Joel. Mm-hmm. Several people approach Marat as he sits, but only to, to insist that he pet the dogs, being a tip to Pat Montesian. Marat is one of the only people not smoking. To whoever approached, he repeats the lines he and Fortier devised. Good night. I am addicted and deformed, seeking treatment for addiction. Desperately. <laughs> One smoking man glares at Marat. Uh, Marat is prepared to die for any reason in his mission, which left him free to choose among emotions. Americans did not appreciate this situation, he found. Marat enjoyed the veil's freedom to stare at whomever he wished without notice, and the smoke in the room made him feel sick. So we have the guy gets up, approaches Marat, recording every detail of the man. He has Levi 501s, a needle to the top of his ear. Uh, nice little sentence. Wore motorcycle boots, but the variety worn by people who did not own motorcycles. <laughs> man leans in and asks Marat if he is real. Says most people in the room aren't real, but metal. Marat replies, I am Swiss. One of his other predestined responses. <laughs> The man continues that these people walk around and make you think they're alive. So we actually discussed this in last week's episode with Jeff Anderson that uh, this has been said multiple times in the zeitgeist of the thing, but also in real, like Vonnegut and Breakfast of Champions, everybody else is a robot's current NPC theory. Uh, Are you aware of NPC theory? I've never heard it phrased in that way. I know what an NPC is because I play video games. It's it's really a dumb thing that like kids on the internet made it up. It just sounds and, like solipsism to me, which is oh, a word that kind of recurs in this book, right? Like true. You know, like my mind is the you know is the arbiter of truth, and I you know mm-hmm. project a universe, you know, and, and everything else exists, you know, for my engagement in some way. I guess it's, it's kind of a similar idea. Yeah, it's it's somehow dumber than that because it's more selective. <laughs> Because it's it's a lot of kids on the internet that literally they start from a place of like, well, there's a lot of people in the world, but only so many souls to go around. So probably a lot of people are just like NPCs, like there's nobody actually in there, mm. which is a very solipsist type thing to sure. think only... <laughs> yeah. Only they, they've managed to narrow it down to like, I'm sure there's plenty of other people, but the people I disagree with, they're probably not real. <laughs> Which. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Wallace makes a pretty good arguments, argument against that. Like he gives flesh and voice to a lot of different psyches mm-hmm. here in this novel and elsewhere too. Like, and, and I think like, if you look at the wider, I don't know how much you've spent with Wallace's um, interviews that he's given, which he gave quite a few mm-hmm. in his time, but like, he's, he's seems like he's a pretty empathic person and like, you know, wants to give people imaginative access to other selves. Oh yeah. No, in his and, fiction, you know, like, and I, I think there's a reason he's put this man who's like leering over Marat. I think there's a very important reason he's putting it 
in the mind of this person. Like this doesn't mm-hmm. seem like anybody we're supposed to think like, ah, oh, that guy knows what's up. Like he just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is not a credible narrator. Exactly. And I, narrator. Yeah. I even like how he describes it, that these people have a micro thin layer of skin, the rest of machinery and Ram and hard drive and says that if you can get close, you can hear the mechanical whir within them, giving them away. Yeah. To which Marat responds blankly, I am Swiss, desperately seeking <laughs> medical treatment. I love Marat in this scene. Um, Me too. I actually, I imagine Marat uh, as a little bit like William H. Macy's character in Fargo, as like this mm. guy who really thinks he has it figured out, but is like kind of dumb still. The car salesman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, like he's really kind of stuck in, he's stuck in this worldview that tells him he knows everything, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really think outside of that at all. Right, yeah. I feel that's a good comparison, I think. And also, I, I like these little bits where we see not not necessarily incompetence, but I like seeing like these big bad assassins and just like, you know, like, oh, okay, we gotta fuck that one up. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that struck me about the scene is like we were talking about um, you know, visceral like toilet stuff in literature earlier. Mm-hmm. And the way that the scene is described with the cigarette smoke. And like all the disgusting conversations that are happening in this room and like the the one person person is like crab walking through the room and then some guys are jumping over him like it's just a very there's a lot of like bathos in this almost like a um like a heimer's bosch painting or like oh i could uh, see that uh like a bruegel painting or something you know like mm-hmm. um and i just felt like actually almost nauseated reading this the way that the way that Murat is is responding to like the cigarette smoke. It's like, it's such a visceral passage. And I think that literarily that's pretty amazing to make your reader almost feel sick while they're reading. (laughs) Agreed. Well, as somebody who, I mean, you've seen, I've been vaping this entire time. As somebody who is like an ex smoker, I am a st- actually that's where like most of my empathizing with the addiction stuff happens in this because i always thought like i'm probably still going to be a guy who needs to smoke every now and again and like the shock of how like disgusting i find the entire thing now on a sensory level yeah. is so it would have been impo- impossible to predict hmm. from the headspace i was in so i have really no issue like just hearing that much smoke in a room just like oh that just feels like gray blue is like the color to describe like like yeah what the air looks like you know like and even like in the earlier aa passages of this book where like everyone's just on gaspers the entire aa meeting Mm -hmm. and then just the dank like church basement coffee out of styrofoam cups like it's a it's a grim scene for sure it's pretty accurate to aa too like it's weird that like the the drug yeah. that is most likely to kill you is the one thing you're allowed to have whenever you want yeah, during there's recovery a, there's there's a weird irony to that isn't there <laughs> yeah and wallace himself like infiltrated a lot of aa meetings like uh, as a way to kind of research this book and mm-hmm. some people that um that knew him were like yeah i kind of got the sense that this dude was just here for material <laughs> you know but like Wallace later was actually also like a card carrying AA member mm. himself too. So like his own struggles with addiction, which didn't really come out until after his death and in, oh, in see, the biography. That is something I did not know that uh, yeah. that wasn't really public knowledge until much later. Yeah. I think his personal mm. life was pretty, he was a pretty private person mm. um, during his lifetime. Okay. And 
a lot of the stuff we know about his life and stuff that went down came out, you know, four years later with DT Max's biography right. and in other places too. So I gotcha. Okay. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, him having depression was not a thing that was public knowledge until after that, his death. See, that is so interesting to me because it is so like, it's like the first in this book. Can you, can you imagine yeah. that though? Being a private person, the thing you try to keep hidden from the world and you're gone. And now it's like one of the first things people know about you. Yeah. Totally. I mean, anytime someone brings up Wallace, it's like, oh yeah, he took his own life. Yeah. That's like the first thing that people know about him. He wrote Infinite Jest and he committed mm-hmm. suicide. Like that, those are, that's yeah. That's just what it happens. It's like I, I I had some people in my family get upset when I they found out I had some material uh talking about my dad and his like hell raising ways. And my response to them was like Guys, if he if he really cared about his legacy, he probably should have lived a little longer and changed. But like you know, he he's he's dead, so I'm sorry he's not going to be offended. So sorry, just it, it's out there. You want to control your legacy? Just live forever. That's your only <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah, no problem there. Mm. <laughs> um. So the man keeps harassing Marat. Uh, Marat <laughs> responds, the Swiss, we are a quiet people. After the man tells him he makes no hard drive sounds. Um, all the projection. Da, 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 da. Marat departs slowly to respond to his call after somebody calls for a physically challenged person with an unpronounceable name. Yeah. We can just jump into the next thing. Uh, Joelle used to enjoy getting high and cleaning. Now she yeah. merely likes cleaning a common form of meditation for addicts too new in recovery to stand still started with Oren. She started cleaning whenever things were rough. Uh, the place together they had was provided nearly free by Jim who said nothing during their first meetings. Oren had to reassure her. This didn't mean he disapproved, but was merely so disinterested in people. It would never occur to him to disapprove. Joel was always creeped out by the weird family nicknames himself and the mad stork. Oren had introduced her to Jim's films, at that point so obscure that even local film students hadn't heard of him. By the end, she'd be closer to Jim than Oren ever was, which led to plenty of fights and late-night cleanings. She'd barely thought of the incandenses for years, but something about Gaitland made them bubble up in her conscience. They were the saddest second, saddest second, second saddest family she'd ever seen. Oren complained often his lack of relationship with his father, which he was aware of was rather common. Joelle had the same same-sex parent issue, never getting along with her mother at all. Oren seemed more centered to his mother. His father was just too removed. Jim's face, the fifth wall in any room. Great phrase right there. Uh, yeah. The man was hidden. The only person he revealed himself to was Avril, who the entire family did. Oren said his younger brother was a hopeless retard. He found it odd neither of his brothers were exceptionally tall, considering the height of the parents. Mario was the size of a fire hydrant. Oren was envious of him. <laughs> Oren was envious of him having to split the mom's love once he was born that he, and that he once nearly killed Mario in his crib. So a lot to take in there. Uh, uh-huh. Just taking a break of that for a second. Actually, you know what? I'm going to keep steamrolling because I think it's better to talk about this whole because we understand a lot about the Incandenza family dynamic here. Yeah. Um, Joel theorized that Avril's pathological love made Jim seem all the more cold and uncaring and made Oren all the more dependent on Avril. Joel says Oren was nothing like her personal daddy, who was so involved he rarely left her room and pathetically followed her around the house like a puppy, ignoring his wife. Oren was the one who encouraged Jim to use Joel in his films. Joel was against it, having the brainy girl's discomfort about her looks. 
also their effect on others, which her father had warned her of. And the phrase, the sweetest syrup attracts the nastiest flies. She also wanted to make films herself, not be in front of the camera. She was grossed out by the obviousness that Oren thought he could get closer to his father through her. And she didn't really want to connect to the father that so hurt the man she loved. Joel found his films amateurish, beautiful visually, but hollow and empty. She'd considered Paradise inferior, people with judgments and criticism, but nothing to say. Coming at me right there, it sounds like, but okay. Uh, <laughs> though Jim started to show brief small flashes of improvement, intentionally ignoring what he was already good at and taking risks to improve his weaknesses. Oren was only the second boy to ever approach Joel. Sorry, this is long. I just want to get through this. Oh, you're uh, fine. First was a piss drunk high school football lineman that approached her by nearly vomiting on her. He revealed the entire team had crushes on her, but she was just too pretty and intimidating. He'd had to liquor himself up to get any confidence to approach. Until that point, she thought it was her dad's weirdness that kept the dates away. This led to a love of film. She was so unentranced with her own point of view, she liked seeing the world from other people's lenses. The first proposal meeting had been at a seafood joint. Joel arrived sober with no makeup, hair, and a sloppy knot. Jim had thought Joel too conventionally pretty for his unconventional work. They ended up embarrassed for Oren, who kept blathering so long none of them talked. Jim told her later that he just didn't know how to speak with either of his undamaged sons without Avril's presence and meditation. Oren wouldn't shut up, and Hal was excruciatingly silent. Said he only got on with Mario because he didn't learn to talk till he was six, so they had plenty of opportunity to be comfortable in mutual silence. Oren wept in the cab from the dinner. They had, he had no idea what his father thought of him quitting tennis about finding something he was finally great at. Joelle met the whole clan at Thanksgiving, and something about Avril made her uncomfortable, though she went out of her way to be sure to include Joelle, asking every fourth question to her. She noticed a spotless dog dish under the table, yet there was no dog to speak of. Jim refilled his drink numerous times. He was so tall that when he rose to refill his tumbler, he seemed to rise forever. Joelle had the queerest indefensible feeling that Avril wished her harm. The family mainly talked to themselves, Jim about the film industry, Hal spouting random facts, Hal's two tennis friends passed out dental stimulators, Hal blathered so much Joel wanted to slap him, Oren rambled about Carl Sagan, Joel nobody looked directly at Jim besides her. Avril encouraged Jim to use Joel on his films, Mario fell out of his chair, which everyone found funny. Not once in front of Oren did anyone mention tennis. At some point, Jim got up to freshen his drink and never returned. Great little detail. Avril asked everyone <laughs> to hold hands, and the dinner ended with an explosion of goodwill as Hal and friends begged for Kahlua. Mario flapped at them in imitation, and Avril showed mock horror when Oren brought out a cigar that he never lit. Joelle was overwhelmed after. Avril had been nothing but nice to her, but Joelle felt, Joel felt in her gut that Avril would have sliced her to ribbons without batting an eye and unnoticed by her loved ones. When they got home, Joelle's face hurt from the hours-long put-on smile, and it was the first time she intentionally did cocaine to avoid sleeping. At 4.08 a.m., she was cleaning out the back of the refrigerator when she heard Oren call out in a nightmare, another great line, call out in a nightmare that by all rights should have been hers. Whew, a lot there. Yeah, that's quite a scene at the the dinner table, the intendant's home. I love the detail that um, Avril has them join hands secularly. (laughs) (laughs) There are there are these like punctuated points in the narrative that are just are just really well wrought. I found in this passage particularly. Yeah, just just the right word at just the right time is um, and secularly. I think is the word that does that there. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's also um, great to see the strangeness of the family through somebody else's eyes. Because totally. obviously nobody within the family can be a non-biased observer. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I like that there's like other tennis kids there too from the academy, but they're never main they're never named. Yeah, that that was interesting. So I'm like, is it Pemulus? Is Michael Pemulus at this dinner? Hmm. Uh, like, is is the darkness? Is Orthostice there? I don't know. Like See, I actually get a little bit confused at what exact like how old everybody is at the table right here at right. this point because i'm what is, i is i don't Hal know 11 i think how's 10 or 11 it's mentioned okay so, so, so there, it's so uh it must have been quite a so what is Hal in the main in the year of the dependent adult underground is he 17 i think i want to say he's 16 shit you might be right because i think the very beginning of the book they say he's like 18 or 19 when he's okay. uh and that's your in um year of glad yeah that's year of glad Huh. Okay, so if he's 17 in the main action in YDAU mm-hmm. and he's 11 in this scene. Okay, so that's a few years back. I, I just realized I had no idea. That's like well before Year of the Whopper. I'm okay. looking at page 223 right now, which is like, uh, the, um, you know, the uh, Rosetta Stone of the years. Y- yes, like yes. <laughs> lovely moment where you're like, oh, I can start to piece the story together now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, um, also, the detail too that um, himself's um, glass of bourbon is like has like methane shimmer coming mm-hmm. out of it. Like the mm-hmm. air above it is like moving. like it's it's so alcoholic. It's just it's like just all up it's just a tumbler full of bourbon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, very very interesting. We get into more the detail of uh, how the love worked, which pretty much I, I I just I love the idea of James and Candenza as like, and I feel like this is part of like the character where a lot of the people who love the book it kind of disappears up his own ass. Like mm-hmm. I also what it's le- know what it's like to be such a genius that nobody understands me and I don't know how to interact with them. <laughs> it's like yeah. yeah yeah guys, you're missing the part where he ruined his sons and nobody fucking liked him personally. Like, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And of course, like his whole impetus for making the film Infinite Jest was so that he and Hal could like converse together, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Okay. Yeah, let's uh let's just truck ahead. I feel like you can't say any more of it than the section it does says. It kind of lays everything out there. Yeah, it's pretty literal stuff, isn't it? Like you mm-hmm. get a sense that like, okay, everyone's entirely dependent on the mother figure on mm-hmm. Avril. She's she's like the nucleus of this family. Um, I mean, Mario gets kind of like a bad shake in this passage. What is yeah. your sense? What do you? What is your sense of Mario? I'm curious to know. I I love Mario. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I I think he's me he's too. Great I'm team guy. Mario all the way. <laughs> I, I I like how it seems like his one negative trait is like he gets kind of grumpy when Madame Psychosis goes off the air. And that's just his one. I just imagine him like a little bundle, of like just yeah, like, like oh god, like you ever see a pug when it gets angry and it's struggling to breathe because pugs should not be. It, it, it's right, kind of yeah. like that. I just imagine it's just a little angry guy, like meh, just really pissed off. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, he obviously cares for everybody and he wants to be involved. It's a little sad hearing how little. But then again, that seems to follow with the Incandenza family. You're either getting everything or nothing, positive or negative, nothing in between. And yeah. Hal loves Mario so much that Ori yeah. to refer to him as a retard the size of a fire 
fire hydrant. Yeah, Oren's a dick for sure. Like, yes, there's there's yeah. very few redeeming moments for Oren. I think in this novel. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Mario fan, and I, and people I know who like this book are like, I would say they're pretty polarized on this question. Like, people think Mario is just like, yeah, whatever. What a lame character. Like, he's just so earnest and he's so pure and mm. um, basically holy. But I just I think Mario is like maybe the heart of this novel in some ways. Um, yeah, I'd say as far as the as far as the irony versus sincerity thing, which. I, I know people try to say, well, that's what the book's about. Like, I think a little bit of the book is about that. And almost <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. all of it's centered on uh, Mario. And in that context, you know, I like it. It's it's fine. I don't know how well it would stand up to scrutiny. It's, it's also a little tricky when, like, everybody... It, it, it's not like, oh, people have shades of this and shades of that. It's more like everybody's bad and Morio's just like the one moral person mm-hmm. in it. So it's kind of hard to really balance that out when like it's only really coming from one. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm curious how somebody would do like the, you know how they have the knock together of like chaotic evil versus uh, systematic evil and chaotic good versus systematic good. Have you ever seen that character chart? Like from uh, Dungeons and Dragons? Like how you describe characters in D&D? No, this is something people, it might have emerged from a screenwriting class, but it's like, okay, it's like a Brady Bunch style. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the the meme. Yeah, totally. I always thought that came from D&D. I could be wrong though. uh, It it could be. It really (laughs) could be. But I just know they have those uh, several axes between chaotic and right. uh ruleful something i i don't know but yeah we're but it seems like only one chunk of that would be just him as just like the one law, lawful <laughs> it's not ruleful oh, it's lawful lawful, lawful, lawful good. good right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then everybody yeah, else is just clustered far on the other like they're just bad yeah lens is like chaotic evil yes as far as you can go yes he is <laughs> <laughs> all right you ready to get into this footnote Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Right, actually, before we get into that, I yeah. didn't do any thoughts on it, but you and I talked about it, uh, how I keep comparing David Foster Wallace to metal bands. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and you said you had a good one that you thought. I think you said Dillinger Escape Plan. <laughs> I did, yeah. This was in our email exchange, I think. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just like super mathy, technical, um, a lot of a lot of like rapid changes, abrupt mm-hmm. changes, uh, and... Um, like calculating infinity is kind of the embodiment of that maybe <laughs> yeah there's some pretty mathy sections of this novel too right yeah um, no it's you know what this goes back to why i compare him to Prague, where i feel yeah. like a lot of it particularly a lot of like that when you talked about the lady who i shouldn't refer to her as just the lady the author <laughs> who did the giant novel in one sentence oh yeah Lucy where Alvin. yeah where it's kind of like that might be really that, that that's not for the layman that's for people who really appreciate and are going to go like how the fuck did they pull this off yeah, and i feel she's like like that's, lucy elman's like godspeed you black emperor you oh know, okay a super long slow burn single <laughs> sentence crescendo at the end after 25 minutes <laughs> not quite yeah. metal but like anarchist french uh french canadian mm. proto-punk there you go whatever however you want to describe post-rock if, uh, if, if you, the listener, are not familiar with Dillinger Escape Plan, if you want, like, the tiniest idea 
of what they sound like without getting too crazy. Listen to the song. One of us is the killer. If you want to jump right in the fucking deep end and hear what we're talking about, go listen to sugar coated sour or, uh, Oh yeah, that's good. Cool. Is that, that, is that the first one off of calculating infinity or is it 43% burnt? Oh, I, I can't remember the track listing, but those both are on that album. I'm quite sure. Just yeah. go listen to the calculating infinity album. Get, get back into yeah, albums. Singles sweet. are bad. Yeah. Oh yeah. Albums for life. Hell yeah. All right. Footnote 304. Struck is writing a paper for Putin Court's class on Canadian unpleasantness. He's reading scholarly articles about a massive feral infants and wheelchair assassins, the AFR. The language is so technical, it's a rare case of reverse plagiarism, requiring so much translation for the layman to understand. The giant feral infants grow but never develop, leaving massive droppings. The wheelchair assassins fight ONAN, seeking only Quebec independence by assassinating politicians and occasionally using large mirrors to drive USA motorists to death by confusion. Oh, man, that's such a rich detail. Huh? It's pretty cool. I, I've seen, uh, <laughs> I've had him on the show, Infinite Jensen, the guy who does sketches. Oh, yeah, David. Yeah, yeah. yeah but he's he, great. I, I love the, where he has that portrayed, that you have the two wheelchair guys with the giant mirror holding up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's done. Um, I'm part of the David Foster Wallace Society. Like, I'm a board member on it, just a general oh, cool. board member. Uh, and he did the cover of our very first issue that we released a couple of years ago with nice. like um, Wallace in a taxi cab, like hailing to the library. I got step you. on it. By the way, he is the only person to do this podcast who never turned the video on, which I appreciate because there's something mysterious about the man. Totally. And I, I want that veil up. I want to know that magic. Um, <laughs> totally. I dig it. Uh, yeah, the giant ferals grow but never develop, leave massive droppings. I went back a little bit. They, uh, the wheelchair assassins reportedly arrive all at once out of nowhere. Their squeaky wheelchairs have led to the euphemism to hear the squeak, the last thing someone hears before a sudden terrible execution. The wheelchair assassins, AFR, are essentially cultists. They are all survivors of Le Jeux de Prochain Train, the next train game, a savage nihilistic metal test originated in the nickel and zinc miners of southwest Quebec in the decade before reconfiguration, a Russian roulettish train jumping. Precisely 216 boys, never more or less, starting groups of six at railway intersections. The goal is simple. It's chicken. The goal is to be the last of the six boys in your group to flee the oncoming train. The train is not an opponent. The only opponents are the other five players in your group. It's not just about your own courage, but your own willingness to force your fellow players into harm's way. The true champions know the other five are not their opponents, but their own will, holding till the last possible second. They close their eyes and trust the rail's vibrations to guide them. The first to jump up walks home alone, ashamed. They are still less ashamed than those who refuse to jump at all, which is simply not permissible. So... I've mentioned Except a few times. Happened. <laughs> what was that? Except for the one time that it happened, right? Yes. And yes. then that kid got drowned. <laughs> oh, so dark. Uh, it's funny. I've told people that I'm really punishing myself literarily right now because I'm reading Infinite Jest and my off the clock, like just fun reading is the Brothers Karamazov. So oh, I'm, yeah. You're, yeah. That's brutal, man. You're, um, I'm a masochist. You're a masochist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a great book. I think yeah. actually, uh, the Brothers Karamazov deeply informs Infinite Jest. That is so. People have already told me that before, and I've heard some yeah. of it. 
just by coincidence, this week I happened to reach a part in the book where they talk about one of the schoolboys laying down on the tracks and laying there as the train passes over him to prove his medal, which is seems like this comes directly from that. He keeps his legs. At least where I'm at in the book, no spoilers. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm just, I just love the serendipity that I just happened <laughs> to find that both on the same week. Wow, yeah. There's a Canadian scholar named Timothy Jacobs who wrote his, I think his master's thesis on, uh, part of it is on Brothers Karamazov and Infinite Jest. And I think it's titled mm-hmm. The Brothers in Candenza. Okay. And his argument is that like, you know, there's the obvious Hamlet uh, kind of overarching story going on here in Infinite mm-hmm. Jest. But uh, his argument, Jacob's argument is that more so this book is indebted to Brothers Karamazov and uh, it more intensely mirrors the the storyline of that book and the character development of that book than Hamlet does, for example. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really good, there's a short article in like an old Texas University Press mm-hmm. um, publication. <laughs> Got it on my shelf. See, I've, I've said a few times that I'm really more so than finishing the book, way more than rereading it, which I don't want to do. Um, I'm <laughs> sure. That's fair. I, I'm... I tend to watch like a lot of film analysis videos and read a lot of articles on stuff like that. I really can't wait to dive into some of those um, Mm -hmm. analyses, particularly as they pertain to other media. Cause I've heard, I've heard the connection of brother Karamazov aside from like the three brothers and like their obvious correlation between each other. Yeah. Which is, makes me wonder like, is there a Smerdyakov hiding out somewhere <laughs> right, that I didn't yeah, yeah. notice? Is, right. is Pemulus Smerdyakov? That would be, that would be neat. <laughs> that would be. Um, another great book for you to check out after you finish reading The Brothers Karamazov is The Brothers K by David James Duncan. Have you ever okay. heard of this? I, it, uh, it's ringing a bell, but I'm not getting any details in my brain. It's like, I think it came out in the mid eighties okay. and it's about a, a uh, four brothers who grew up in Washington state in like the mm-hmm. 1950s, 60s, 70s. Um, one of my favorite books of all time, but it like obviously tips its hat to Dostoevsky in the title and, and mm-hmm. like has some pretty sweet similarities throughout. Okay. It's a good one to cool. check out when you're done. I, that. I will have to look up the brothers K then. Nice. Yeah. It's all wonderful. right. I think we can finish up in this last chunk here. Um, cool. If you get hit full on, the body tends to be smeared red across a hundred yards. More likely, the last-minute leapers are cleaved in two, losing their legs either promptly or later at the hospital. Struck struggles to come up with a way to plagiarize this. Hal, Hal and others have noticed that plagiarists often struggle harder to plagiarize than to formulate their own thoughts, which would take way less effort. That's such a great section. Yeah, it is. Uh, the entire train ordeal is traditionally performed in total silence. If a boy is struck, the last person to dodge is the winner. The struck boys often fill the role of audience for future rounds. It is not rare for several finalists all to be struck. Though it is known the legless survivors form the basis of the wheelchair assassins, it's not entirely known what the transitive property is that led one to the the other. There's no overarching philosophy to connect the two. It is debated amongst scholars. There was also to consider the cult of the endless kiss. Boys and girls who'd partner and kiss one exhaling into the other inhaling person and vice versa until they gave up or passed out, which is of course brought up several times throughout the book in different things. I think Oren specifically said that to describe his uh, mother's over overwhelming love and closeness Mm. for one saucy. 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's such a hilarious parody of academia, this section, this footnote. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the great irony, you know, is that Wallace is writing like a pretty academic novel here, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's totally taking the piss out of the absurdities of academia in talking about this class and this paper and the ways that Strzok is trying to like, mm-hmm. um, what is the way that Hal phrases it? Um, whether it's dishonesty or kind of kleptomaniacal thrill seeking or what, Hal hasn't de- developed much of any sort of take about why people painstakingly plagiarize. Um, it's a, it's a rad takedown. I love it. Oh yeah. No, that's a, it's just a, the idea of just reverse plagiarism is <laughs> it's, it's very specific, but it's all very true to life. And again, the, the plagiarist, like you could have just made up your own that there is, there is a certain thing to plagiarism that I do think is just a lack of confidence in one's own yeah. ability to put something together. Yeah, totally. Cognitive acuity or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, you have anything else to say about that section? Um, I mean, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around how 216 French Canadian boys could organize something like this and pull it off without like authorities showing up and shutting it down. And like, this trains just keep coming. Like there's a lot, I have a lot of questions about the like logistics of this. (laughs) You know, this is something I actually kind of pictured as a, you know, it's actually phrased pretty well in the movie Dazed and Confused, where they talk about like the hazing rituals where and as the people are discussing it, they're saying it's like, yeah, and it's almost like the town has endorsed this or at least is not actively discouraging it. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm almost picturing like kind of the upper class, like it's something like the upper classmen have always brought in the younger people. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there's like a tacit complicity in the people mm-hmm. like people are aware this is happening and they just kind of accept it. Because mm-hmm. I mean, quite a few uh, mentions that this is like a really poor region, like the Papineau region, is, right? Um, and so, like, maybe there's just no like funding for you know, agencies that could intervene in something like this. Yeah, you gotta get your rocks off somehow. But also, <laughs> the, the the fact that it's a poor region, the fact that it's a rural region, and yet the sheer amount of competitors is so high, it doesn't seem to really square with the rural thing, unless there is like this underground network web of like the community not only allows but kind of encourages this mm-hmm. as a especially as a rite of passage thing yeah and then that makes you think well maybe there are ties to like the afr that go beyond you know what's being suggested here mm-hmm. you know so yeah. there's no philosophical connection that we know of between this you know cult of the and the last train and the afr but like maybe there is I wonder, maybe there's some shame in being the loser, and this is like the redemption. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Totally. Well, it was a great uh, 30 pages to revisit after, you know, quite a quite a long time away. It's nice to dig back into this book a little bit again. So thanks for bringing me into it, Jesse. Appreciate that. Yeah, man. Th- thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun getting into it. I'm I'm looking forward, once I'm done, to actually go back and listen to your podcast, knowing everything. Oh yeah, cool. We we try to be like relatively non-spoilery when we talk about Empedocles. We talk about lots of other uh, works by Wallace too, but I would say like you can listen to most of our episodes without getting tremendous plot spoilers. Okay. Um, so something that we we sort of shoot for. We don't assume that everyone who's listening has finished Infinite Jest. Um, mm. 
but I can't like fully guarantee that. So don't quote me. Like there might be like, <laughs> there might be the odd tip there, but um, yeah. Gotcha. All right. So Dave Laird, great concavity podcast. Uh, remind us again where we can find you online. Yeah. You can check us out at uh, greatconcavity.podbean.com or whatever podcast platform you use, like Apple podcasts or Stitcher or whatever, like, Search us. We are there uh, on Twitter. We're at concavity show, same as on Instagram. And you can just search us on Facebook. Um, and yeah, we're, we're pretty, we're, we're pretty easy to find on a Google search. I think the first great concavity hit is like the Wikipedia entry for great concavity in infinite jest. But mm-hmm. after that, I think we're pretty close down. So, okay. That's good. That's good. SEO results. As long as you're on the first page, you know, yeah, yeah. I think we're I think we're doing okay on, on that. I've never paid a company to like get us higher or anything. So good. Don't don't give them the money. They're the criminals. <laughs> yeah. All I, right. I tend to agree. All right. Dave, thank you for doing the podcast. I am oh, you're welcome. To Thanks stop so much for recording, having me. but you and I cool. can keep chatting for a sec. All right. See Please. you guys.